0: Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and my fellow commenter in today's episode is Cameron Brooks. Dan Reed will also be joining us to follow up on some thoughts about the sermon he preached at Grace last Sunday. Together, we'll be talking about the curse of sin, and how Jesus shouldered it for the sake of his people. Why it's better to think of repentance not as a choice, but as a gift. And how that might change the way we approach negative emotions like guilt and shame. Between now and last Sunday, Sioux Falls had one of its annual spring snowstorms but we didn't let the weather interfere with our schedule. Last time we promised some follow-up with Dan Reed who preached at Grace over the weekend. So I called him up on the phone to ask a few questions about serpents and curses. So Dan, you shared in your sermon some of your firsthand experiences in battling snakes down in Kansas. <laughs> Uh, Did you have any close calls while you were down there, by the way?
1: Not any close calls. I was able to come upon a couple snakes. Uh, I can remember three or four times coming up to snakes and needing to get rid of them. Um, But I I was never struck at by a snake.
0: Sure. And maybe if you had known you were going to use it as a sermon illustration, you would have kept one of those snakes to bring as a kind of show and tell.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, I I, I do have the rattles. Is that uh, right? So I have those yeah, yeah, I have um, a couple rattles. I gave one away and then I have one one up on my shelf and I looked at it prior to preaching just kind of get get ready for the sermon.
0: Oh, that's great. I mean, you made a big point and this resonates with me, the the sort of antipathy that we have towards snakes. We we just don't love snakes. That takes us back to Genesis 3:15, mm-hmm. which really sets the tone for the whole snake human relationship and you dealt with that a little bit in your sermon as well. But, but here's what surprised me. So when we think about Genesis three fifteen, I think it's easy to think of, you know, the seed of the woman versus the serpent, you know, that, mm-hmm. that you will bruise his heel, he will bruise your head, or as Paul puts it, crush your head. And so we think mm-hmm. of, of this opposition, right? Like, like two warriors going into battle. But mm-hmm. you talked about the curse in a way that made that image a lot more complicated when we mm-hmm. look at the cross, right? You, you quoted from Galatians 3, 13 and 14, where it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. What does that mean exactly? I mean, what, what does this passage in John 3 illuminate about Christ becoming the curse?
1: When we look at Jesus uh, comparing himself to that serpent in the wilderness, is uh, the serpent is the cursed animal that's come in. Uh, and then there's the, the metal serpent that Moses puts up in the wilderness for the people to look at. And it's this public display of the curse that's out in the distance that so the people need to look at that in faith. Uh, so too with Jesus when he came as a man, he was on the cross as a curse of God, that he took on our sin, he took on our our wickedness and our rebellion upon himself, and he was lifted up and displayed on the cross, and he was crushed by the Father, that that he was punished for our sins and took upon the punishment that we deserve upon himself.
0: So that crushing that we think of exclusively as you know, Jesus crushing the head of the serpent, you have turned that around and, and shown that there's that sense where Jesus himself is, he puts himself on the receiving end of that punishment.
1: He endured the full wrath of God on, on our behalf, and that that crushing came down upon him instead of upon us. Uh, and in that, we, we find that Jesus didn't stay on the cross. Uh, but he was resurrected, that he was brought forth, and that's what we celebrate at Easter. Uh, and we see that, that he was crushed on the cross, but in that crushing, he did the death blow to, to the serpent's head, uh, and he crushed Satan through that.
0: I think that really helps explain the, I want to use the word irony, of the death of christ perceived from the perspective Mm -hmm. of the serpent let's say Mm that it seems as if christ's death would be his defeat and yet in his death he is victorious but part of that victory is as you say taking upon himself the penalty for the sins of his people so that they don't have to answer for those sins, that they're not subject to the curse of the covenant, which they themselves broke, but Mm -hmm. instead he keeps it on their behalf and in a a sense cheats Satan of his Mm. victory.
1: Yeah, well, and that's kind of going back to that Genesis passage where you see the snake striking out and, and bruising the heel of the seat of the woman. Uh, and so there was, in a sense, this, this what it looked like—victory for Satan. And yet, as he struck the heel of the seed, the, the the heel came down and crushed his head. And so, yeah, like I like that word irony that you used there—that it it almost flips it around and, and does the opposite of what it looked like at first.
0: Well, I want to thank you for preaching on this passage and. I I think you gave us a a really good challenge. You know, we've been looking at connections between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And sometimes we can get a little bit in the weeds. You know, we can look at very Mm. subtle connections and bridges from one to the other. But I think what you've helped us remember is that that through line, there's nothing subtle about it. It's right there in the open in the most memorable events in the Christian gospel, the crucifixion of Christ, that that iconic moment is prefigured in the Old Testament and is a culmination of the promises that we see in the Old Testament. As we talk about the work of Christ on the cross, you might notice something. At Grace, we make it sound like Jesus did all the work, not just some of it. To hear us speak, it almost sounds like your salvation didn't happen when you chose Jesus, but was all done at the cross, or even before when God made the loving choice to save before the foundation of the world. If you think that's what you're hearing, well, you're not wrong. To help explain, Cameron and I had a conversation about a part of salvation that most Christians tend to think of as their work, not Christ's, namely repentance. But as you'll hear, even repentance is a gift from God. Every week in our worship services, one of the things that we do in our liturgy is a confession of sin. This is because every aspect of worship at grace is one of the things that we've learned from Christ that we ought to do. And so each week, our confession of sin is kind of a two part confession. So there's a corporate aspect where all of us together confess our sins, and then there's an individual aspect where we take some time in silence to confess our individual sins. And in this week's Confession of Sin, uh, we read these words, give us repentance, Lord, and give us rest. And as we read that, that suggests that repentance is a gift from God. Now, Cameron, I think most people would say repentance is what comes first and when you repent as a reward, you receive gifts from God. But here we're, we're talking about even repentance as a gift from God.
2: I think it says something about our Reformed theology deep down that salvation doesn't begin with my choice to follow Jesus. We talked a little bit about that in our baptism episode, how sometimes baptism is seen as this choice to follow Jesus. Repentance is almost the second thing. I I don't know if that's the right way of saying it, but before I decide to repent, God has already been working in me so that my decision to repent is prompted and compelled by him. And in that sense, it's a gift because were it not for his working in in my heart, in all of our hearts, we wouldn't get to that point and we wouldn't acquire the kind of rest that is also mentioned here.
0: So repentance and faith as well right. are gifts of God, works of the Holy Spirit in us. And and I think you're right that that is one of the areas where Reformed theology has a very different view than, than what most Christians are accustomed to. To thinking of. I think it's fair to say that that most Christians, wherever you find yourself on the theological spectrum, you've probably been accustomed to thinking of salvation as a kind of um, two-way street. You know, God has offered his grace and made a, a sort of offer of salvation, and it's up to you to take him up on it. And, you know, some would say you take him up on it by living a life of good works some would say no no salvation is not by works it's by grace you take him up on the offer simply by choosing to simply by choosing to believe that's all you have to do and in reformed theology we go behind those human actions and we see the work of the spirit even there so when i come to faith it's because the Holy Spirit is working in me. When when he regenerates me, he quickens my heart, then I respond with repentance and faith. As a result, we don't take credit for those things. We don't say that the difference between me and you is that you chose to believe the wrong thing, whereas I chose to believe what is right and true. We recognize that that as we say, if not for the grace of God, go I. I mean, we would not have made the right choice had it not been for the work of the Spirit in us. So it's not that we deny choosing. It's not that we say the experience that we have of coming to faith and of choosing is false. It's just that it's more complex than you might think, that that the Spirit is at work in even there and there's nothing for us to boast about, so in that sense, absolutely we see repentance and faith as a gift of god's free grace and this is why have you read j. i. Packer's Introduction to the Death of Death and the Death of Christ?
2: I've heard you talk about it a few times yeah you, you've
0: <laughs> got to read it that that's that's a great topic for a future episode but but the beauty of that Essay is that J.I. Packer, in his introduction, gives a very uh, compelling description of Reformed theology, of of quote unquote Calvinism, and emphasizes the fact that, like, if you want to sum it up, if, if you want to say, you know, what is the gospel according to Reformed theology, you just have to say, God saves sinners, period. And that's the distinguishing feature, right? That, that it's God save sinners, period, and we don't add anything else. It's not God save sinners, but they're going to have to live a life of good works and, and be literal saints in order to merit salvation. It's not God save sinners, provided that they make the right choices, cooperate with his grace or whatever. It's just God save sinners. It's as simple as that. and. All the complexity of how he works you know, in and through us, how he works through those secondary causes, all of that is real, but ultimately God saves sinners. And so we receive it all as a gift and never as something to boast about.
2: I've been interested in thinking about repentance not just as this first step of salvation or as a a piece of justification, but as a piece of sanctification, too, which is, of course, why it's in our liturgy, because repentance is something that we do again and again and again. Martin Luther said the Christian life is one of continual repentance, something like that. Right. And over the years, I have come to see it as as truly a gift, because I think there are no other great opportunities in life that I see for a chance to really come clean or there are fewer and fewer opportunities in life. Most people are trying to to build up a reputation and to you know shore up um, any gray areas in their life and to to build themselves up but not to admit of any any faults. But as a result, we can sometimes live with weights on our shoulders we can live with sin in our hearts we can harbor things and that really can just eat you eat you away and for that reason i think having this weekly opportunity in the liturgy to confess to god these things that maybe i've been carrying all week is just a tremendous weight off my shoulders and and i i think it's a gift because the other gift is that i know because of the promises of god that i'll be received and accepted because of his grace because of the the promises of god so maybe the the best gift of all is the gift of salvation in christ and the the assurance that i have a father the second is repentance yeah. and they, they go hand in hand something like that. It's a
0: good way of putting it I, I think the the weight that's being lifted in that habit of repentance is connected in a weird way to, um, you know, in Marxism, they're always talking about false consciousness. Uh, whenever people believe things that don't fit with the party line, it's because of a false consciousness. They don't know what's good for them, that sort of thing. But if you think about it, the, the, the nature of being a sinner is living in a, a sort of false consciousness where we are acting in ways that are out of accord with what we know to be right But we're doing more than that. We're telling ourselves that the wrong that we do isn't wrong. So there's a kind of conflict over the interpretation of reality that's constantly going on in our minds. And the farther we get from repentance, the more assertive that false consciousness can be so that you you can be a person who's professed faith in Christ, you've repented of your sins, but but over time you've come to justify things that you know the Bible condemns, but you've made an allowance for yourself. You've sort of carved out you know something where you're like you know this isn't actually wrong. Uh, sometimes you do it by telling yourself, um, you know maybe the Bible doesn't really mean this. Uh, when I was a kid, you know the preachers would always get up and rail against rock music, but, but their references were always about 10 years out of date. And so they never mentioned bands we actually liked. And so we always felt like we got by on a technicality, you know, as long as they didn't mention your sin by name, then, then you were okay. Sometimes though it's, It's even bolder than that, where we acknowledge that, sure, the Bible does teach this, but the Bible's an old book with old ideas, and and we know so much more now, and and maybe there's parts of the Bible that still aren't relevant. But again, you're doing this cognitive work to, it feels like, to, to, to steer through life, but the problem is the wheel is always jerking. And so repentance needs to be a habit because the wheel is not just going true. It's always being jerked in another direction. We have to repent, which is to turn, because we are constantly turning back. You know, that, that we turn away from our sins. We take a few steps, like Lot's wife. We take a look back. And so the reason we come to worship again and we repent again of our sins is because we are, in a sense course correcting, right? We're intentionally pursuing sanctification, and part of that is always it feels like always going back to square one because we're always essentially you know, turning our heads around to face Christ.
2: I have a thought. I don't know if this is orthodox, so you can correct me if i'm if I'm off here. But I've wondered if repentance is possible. Only when we know we will be received by the the love and the grace of God on the other side of it. Some background to that question is I felt growing up a lot of times that there was a huge emphasis on this choice to repent of your sin, to see your sins, to get rid of them, and to recognize that you're truly unworthy before God. And only then can you can you truly accept Christ. And while I still think There's some truth in there. I sometimes wonder, is it really possible for us to believe all of those things without assuming that God will accept us because of his his fatherly love in Christ at the same time? I don't know if that distinction makes sense.
0: So I I don't know like I don't know how to answer the question, is it possible? But I do I do think the two things go together. So I think that the we can repent boldly because we know that the forgiveness of sins is there, and therefore it makes the honesty easy, right? So I think there is some merit to the idea that before we can understand the gospel in its fullness, we need to understand our sin, right? So without a consciousness of sin, repentance is it doesn't make sense and so i think we see this now in in the modern world because outside the church the average person doesn't really have a sense of the reality of sin right we tend to psychologize everything and so if anything it, it you might be you know maladjusted or you might have you know problems with guilt or something like that But usually when we encounter guilt in the outside world, we see the guilt as the problem, not not the act for which we feel guilty. And so it seems like our therapeutic instinct is always to say, you need to get over your guilt. And it's very difficult for us to judge whether or not the thing you feel guilty about is actually wrong. Because our culture has sort of taken that away from us uh, sort of made those kinds of value judgments, if not off limits, at least uh, the sort of thing that like smart people don't do. Increasingly there are aspects of our lives of the human experience that we have a hard time sort of facing head on. And I think there probably is a need somehow to reconnect with the reality of sin and the reality of guilt so that we can understand what it is the gospel is, is delivering us from. At the same time, you know, sometimes the gospel is presented in such a way that it it seems like all guilt and no good news. And, and I think that's, the difficulty, because that kind of gospel presentation, uh, gospel presentation in quotes, because, of course, that's leaving out the most important things about the gospel, it, it tends to harden people's hearts. And so there's a reason why when people hear you talk about sin, they bristle. It's not just because they're sinners, and that's a component of it, but but it's it's also because they hear judgment and they don't hear the offer of forgiveness. And so I think it's it's really important that, that we, as we proclaim the, the gospel and as we call people to repentance, that call to repentance comes hand in hand with that offer of grace.
2: It's no accident that even Christ himself said, repent and believe, repent and believe. I used to teach my students that, Repentance and faith are like two sides of the same coin. You flip a coin and they go together. They're meant to go together and they, they complement each other. And you you're not really meant to just repent without also being called to faith in Christ at, at the same time, it seems. Well, and
0: here I think we come full circle, because this is why seeing all of this as a gift is so important. Because absolutely, if you think that it's all about making the choice and that therefore it is all ultimately up to you and, and not God, then the first question I think you're going to ask is, well, is it possible to repent but not believe? Or could I believe and not repent? Something like that. And I mean, I think that's, I, I love questions like that in the classroom, but they come out of that misconception that the Holy Spirit might suddenly like do some of the work, but not all of it. So it makes perfect sense if we are relying on human beings to save themselves, that they will get that salvation wrong and that they'll, you know, do part and not all of what is required. But if we're relying on the Holy Spirit and we're relying on God to do the work of salvation, then your anxiety that that some of it's going to accidentally get left out just goes away. And you understand, as we said, God saves sinners and I'm a sinner in need of salvation and my trust is in God to save me. And so I think that ultimately, no matter what your creed is, no matter what kind of Christian you are, you may abominate the name of John Calvin, but but ultimately your comfort is gonna be found in something like that reformed understanding of sovereignty. You might carve out philosophical space for human autonomy or whatever, but in moments of comfort you're you're erring on the side of god and you're relying on god to to work even where you've convinced yourself you know he's not allowed to work and all that i think is is to the good because what we're meant to do is throw ourselves on god's mercy and let him take care of the steps and trust him to do it right
2: maybe one last note on the cultural point you made it's tragic that our culture seems to want to get rid of guilt because in so doing they're getting rid of that experience of the gift of repentance too if if guilt is just something that you're feeling but it's not actually it's not a result of of your real sins um then you you don't have the opportunity to repent and believe in the gospel of course so I'm giving thanks for the gift of repentance, and rather than trying to just get rid of the guilt, though the gospel does do that, it doesn't do it by just pretending, it does it by facing it, and by the Holy Spirit allowing us to face it, and turning away from those sins, and finding joy in the gospel.
0: That's all the time we have for the commentary this week. I want to say thanks both to Dan and to Cameron, and thanks to you as well. We're grateful to everyone who's listening. We hope you'll join us next time. In the meantime, we hope you'll share the commentary with others. We think this is a great way to introduce people to grace and to the way that we think about the gospel of Jesus Christ. As always, you can subscribe to the commentary on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and you can find out more about us online at org.